Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Chapter 12 of Warwick the Kingmaker by Charles William Chadwick Oman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Pacification of the North. Whatever the partisans of peace may have hoped in the winter of 1461 and 62, there was in reality no prospect of a general pacification so long as the indomitable Margaret of Anjou was still at liberty and free to plot against the quiet of England. The defeats of her Scotch allies in the summer of 1461 had only spurred her to fresh exertions. In the winter, while Edward's Parliament was sitting at Westminster, she was busy hatching a new scheme for simultaneous risings in various parts of England, accompanied by descents from France and Brittany, aided by a Castilian fleet. Somerset and Hungerford had got some countenance from the King of France, and Margaret's own hopeful heart built on this small foundation a great scheme for the invasion of England. A Scotch raid, a rising in Wales, a descent of Breton upon Guernsey and Jersey, and a great French landing at Sandwich were to synchronize, if weather and wind had served them. They should have had 120,000 men on foot in England upon Candlemas Day. But weather and wind were unpropitious, and the only tangible result of the plan was to cost the life of the Earl of Oxford, who had been told off to head the insurgents of the eastern counties. He had been taken into favor by King Edward, and we need have small pity for him when he was detected in correspondence with the Queen at the very time that he was experiencing the clemency of her rival. But it was an evil sign of the times that he and his son were executed, not after a regular trial before their peers, but by a special and unconstitutional court held by the Earl of Worcester as Constable of England. For this evil precedent, Warwick must take the blame no less than Edward. But Margaret of Anjou had not yet exhausted her energy. So soon as the storms of winter were over, and Somerset returned from France without the promised succors, she resolved to set out in person to stimulate the zeal of Louis XI, and to gather help from her various relatives on the continent. Escaping from Scotland by the Irish Sea, she rounded the land's end and came ashore with her young son in Brittany. The duke gave her twelve thousand crowns and passed her on to her father René in Anjou. From his court she went on to King Louis who lay at Rouen. With him she had more success than might have been expected, though far less, of course, than she had hoped. Louis was able to show that he had already got together a fleet reinforced by some Breton and Castilian vessels in the mouth of the Seine. In return for an agreement by which Margaret promised the cession of Calais, and perhaps that of the Channel Isles, 
he undertook to engage frankly in the war and to put at margaret's disposition a force for the invasion of england the way in which louis chose a leader for this army was very characteristic of the man he had in close confinement at the time a favorite of his father and an enemy of his own peter de brezé count of maulevrier and seneschal of normandy de brezé was a gallant knight and a skilled leader only a few years before he had distinguished himself in the english war and among other achievements had taken and sacked sandwich the king now offered him the choice of staying in prison or of taking charge of an expedition to scotland in aid of margaret de brezé accepted with alacrity the latter alternative as much we are told from chivalrous desire to assist a distressed queen as from dislike for the inside of the dungeons of Loche. quite satisfied apparently at getting an enemy out of the country on a dangerous quest louis gave him twenty thousand livres in money forty small vessels and about two thousand men and bade him take the queen whither she would go while louis and margaret were negotiating their english enemies had been acting with their accustomed vigor when may came round warwick again resumed command of the northern border and marched out to finish the work that had been begun in the previous year he was already on scottish ground and had taken at least one castle north of the border when he received a herald from the scotch regents offering to treat for peace by his commission drawn up in the last year warwick was authorized to act as plenipotentiary in any such matter accordingly he sent back his army and went himself to dumfries where he met mary the dowager queen of scotland and the majority of the regents they concluded an armistice to last till st bartholomew's day and then set to work to discuss terms of peace the common report ran that the scots were ready not only to give up the lancastrian cause but even to deliver over the person of King Henry. Moreover, there was talk of an alliance by marriage between the English king and a Scotch princess. This new departure, mainly brought about by the Queen Dowager's influence, was not without its effect on the Lancastrian partisans, who found themselves left unsupported to resist Warwick's army, which was, during the negotiations, put under the command of his brother Montague, and set to reduce the northumbrian fortresses king henry fled from the scotch court and took refuge in one of the castles of the archbishop of st andrews the chief member of the regency who opposed peace with england lord dacre brother of the peer who fell at towton surrendered himself to montague and was sent to london where king edward received him into grace even somerset himself the chief of the party lost heart and began to send secret letters to Warwick to ascertain whether there was any hope of pardon for him. Meanwhile, Newworth Castle was surrendered to Montague, and the more important stronghold of Annick yielded itself to Lord Hastings, who had been detached to form its siege. Bamborough was given up to Sir William Tunstall, and of all the northern fortresses, only Dunstaneborough remained in Lancastrian hands and it seemed that this place must fall ere the year was out. Believing that the war was practically at an end, Warwick now turned south and rode up to London to lay the Scotch proposal before the king. But he had not long left the border when the whole aspect of affairs was once more transformed by the reappearance of Queen Margaret on the scene. 
while montague and warwick had been in the north king edward had been sorely vexed by rumours of french invasion seventy french and spanish ships were roaming the channel and Falconbridge, who had set out to find them with a hastily raised fleet came home without success a french force had mustered in picardy and queen margaret lay all the summer at boulogne tampering with the garrison of calais who had fallen into mutiny on account of long arrears of pay but calais failed to revolt louis made no serious attempt on england and the queen at last grew impatient and determined to start herself for england though she could only rely on the assistance of peter de brezé and his two thousand men setting sail early in october she passed up the eastern coast and landed in northumberland expecting that all the north country would rise to her aid no general insurrection followed but margaret's arrival was not without effect both annick and banborough fell into her hands the former by famine for it was wholly unvictualled and could not hold out a week the latter betrayed by the governor's brother nor was this all the presence of the queen moved the scotch regents to break off their negotiations with england and denounce the truce which they had so recently concluded all that the statesmanship of warwick and the sword of montague had done for england in the year fourteen sixty two was lost in the space of a week the moment that the unwelcome news of margaret's advent reached london warwick flew to repair the disaster only eight days after the fall of bamborough he was already at the head of twenty thousand men and hastening north by forced marches the king ill informed as to the exact force that had landed in northumberland had sent out in haste for every man that could be gathered and followed himself with the full levy of the southern counties the nearer the yorkists approached to the scene of action the less formidable did their task appear the approach of winter had prevented the scots from putting an army into the field and the lancastrians and their french allies had made no attempt to push out from their castles all that they had done was to strengthen the three strongholds and fill them with provisions in annick lay peter de brezé's son and some of the frenchmen together with lord hungerford somerset who had dropped his secret negotiations with warwick when his mistress returned from france held bamborough with him were lord roos and jasper earl of pembroke sir ralph percy the fighting man of the percy clan for his nephew the heir of northumberland was a minor had made himself strong in dunstanborough meanwhile the queen on the approach of warwick had quitted her adherents and set sail for scotland with her son and her treasure under convoy of de brezé and the main body of the french mercenaries but the month was now november the seas were rough and off bamborough she was caught in a storm her vessel with three others were driven against the iron-bound coast and she herself barely escaped with her life in a fishing-boat which took her into berwick her treasures went to the bottom and of her french followers four hundred were cast ashore on holy island where they were forced to surrender next day to a force sent against them by montague warwick had now arrived at newcastle and king edward was but a few days march behind him though the month was november and winter campaigns especially in the bleak and thinly populated north were in the fifteenth century as unusual as they were miserable warwick had determined to make an end of the new lancastrian invasion 
before the Scots should have time to move. Luckily, we have a full account of his dispositions for the simultaneous siege of the three Percy castles from the pen of one who served on the spot. The army was arranged as follows. King Edward, with the reserve, lay at Durham, in full touch with York and the south. The Duke of Norfolk held Newcastle, having as his main charge the duty of forwarding convoys of victuals and ammunition to the front, and of furnishing them with strong escorts on their way, to guard against any attempts made by roving bands of Scots or Percy retainers to break the line of communications, thirty miles long, which connected Newcastle with the army in the field. The force under Warwick's immediate command, charged with the reduction of the fortresses, was divided into four fractions. The castles lie at considerable intervals from each other, first Bamborough to the north on a bold headland projecting into the sea, a Norman keep surrounded with later outworks, next Dunstanborough, nine miles farther south and also on the coast, lastly Annick, five miles southwest of Dunstanborough, on a hill three miles from the sea coast, overlooking the river Olne. Dunstanborough and Bamborough, if not relieved from the sea, could be surrounded and blockaded with comparative ease. Annick, the largest and strongest of the three castles, required to be shut in on all sides, and was likely to prove by far the hardest task. Luckily for Warwick, the Roman road known as the Devil's Causeway was available for the connection of his outlying forces, as it runs almost by the walls of Annick, and within easy reach of both Dunstanborough and Bamborough. To each castle its own blockading force was attached. Opposite Bamborough, the one of the three which was nearest to Scotland and most exposed to attack by a relieving army, lay Montague and Sir Robert Ogle, both of whom knew every inch of the border. Dunstanborough was beleaguered by Tiptoft, Earl of Worcester, and Sir Rafe Grey. Annick was observed by Falconbridge and Lord Scales. Warwick himself, with the general reserve, lay at Warkwith, three miles from Annick, ready to transfer himself to any point where his aid might be needed. The forces employed were not less than 30,000 men, without counting the troops on the lines of communication at Newcastle and Durham. To feed such a body in the depth of winter, in a sparsely peopled and hostile country, and with only one road open was no mean task. Nevertheless, the arrangements of Warwick worked with perfect smoothness and accuracy. Good witness to the fact that his talent for organization was as great as his talent for the use of troops in the field. Every morning, we are told, the Earl rode out and visited all the three sieges, for to oversee, and if they wanted victuals or any other thing, he was ready to purvey it to them with all his power. His day's ride was not less than thirty miles in all. The army was in good spirits and sure of success. We have people enow here, wrote John Paston, whose duty it was to escort Norfolk's convoys to and fro, so make as merry as ye can at home, for there is no jeopardy toward. A siege at Christmas tide was the last thing that the Lancastrians had expected at the moment of their rising. They had counted on having the whole winter to strengthen their position. No hope of immediate aid from Scotland was forthcoming, and after three weeks' blockade, the spirits of the defenders of Bamborough and Dunstanborough sank so low that they commenced to think of surrender. 
Somerset, as we have already mentioned, had been in treaty with Warwick six months before with the object of obtaining grace from King Edward. He now renewed his offer to Warwick, pledging himself to surrender Bamborough in return for a free pardon. Rafe Percy, the commander of Dunstanborough, professed himself ready to make similar terms. It is somewhat surprising to find that Warwick supported and Edward granted the petitions of Somerset and Percy. But it was now two years since the tragedy of Wakefield. Both the king and his cousin were sincerely anxious to bring about a pacification, and they had resolved to forget their blood feud with the Beauforts. On Christmas Eve, 1462, therefore, Banborough and Dunstanborough threw open their gates, such of their garrisons as chose to swear allegiance to King Edward being admitted to pardon, while the rest, headed by Jasper of Pembroke and Lord Roos, were allowed to retire to Scotland unarmed and with white staves in their hands. Somerset and Percy went on to Durham, where they swore allegiance to the king. Edward took them into favor and gave them his own livery and great rewards, to Somerset in especial a grant of twenty marks a week for his personal expenses, and the promise of a pension of a thousand marks a year. As a token of his loyalty, Somerset offered to take the field under Warwick against the Scots, and he was accordingly sent up to assist at the siege of Annick. Percy was shown equal favor. As a mark of confidence, the king made him governor of Bamborough, which Somerset had just surrendered. After the yielding of his chief adversary, King Edward thought that there was no further need for his presence in the north. Accordingly, he returned home with the bulk of the army, leaving Warwick with 10,000 men commanded by Norfolk and the Earl of Worcester to finish the siege of Annick. Somerset lay with them, neither overmuch trusted nor overmuch condemned by his late enemies. Warwick's last siege, however, was not destined to come to such an uneventful close as those of Banborough and Dunstanborough. Lord Hungerford and the younger de Brézé made no signs of surrender and protracted their defense till January 6, 1463. On that day, at five o'clock in the dusk of the winter morning, a relieving army suddenly appeared in front of Warwick's entrenchments. Though it was midwinter, Queen Margaret had succeeded in stirring up the Earl of Angus, the most powerful noble in Scotland, and at that moment practical head of the Douglases, to lead a raid into England. Fired by the promise of an English dukedom to be given when King Henry should come to his own again, Angus got together twenty thousand men, and slipping through the central marches and taking to the Watling Street, presented himself most unexpectedly before the English camp. With him was Peter de Brézé, anxious to save his beleaguered son, and the Queen's French mercenaries. For once in his life, Warwick was taken by surprise. The Scots showed in such force that he thought himself unable to maintain the whole of his lines, and concentrated his forces on a front facing northwest between the Castle Hill and the river. Here he awaited attack, but nothing followed save insignificant skirmishing. Angus had come not to fight, but only to save the garrison. When the English blockading force was withdrawn, a party of Scotch horse rode up to the postern gate of the castle and invited the besieged to escape. Accordingly, Lord Hungerford, the younger de Brézé, Sir Richard Tunstall, and the great majority of the garrison hastily issued forth and joined the relieving forces. 
Then Angus, to the surprise of the English, drew off his men and fell back hastily over the border. Warwick had been quite outgeneraled, but the whole of his fault seems to have been the neglect to keep a sufficient force of scouts on the border. If he had known of Angus's approach, he would have been able to take proper measures for protecting the siege. But the main feeling in the English army was rather relief at the departure of the Scots than disgust at the escape of the garrison. If on that day the Scots had but been bold, as they were cunning, they might have destroyed the English lords, for they had doubled their numbers, writes the chronicler. The thing which attracted most notice was the fact that the renegade Somerset showed no signs of treachery and bore himself bravely in the skirmish, proving manfully that he was a true liegeman to King Edward. Henceforth he was trusted by his colleagues. Some of the Yannick garrison had been either unwilling or unable to escape with Angus. These protracted the defense for three weeks longer, but on January 30th they offered to surrender and were allowed to depart unharmed to Scotland. The castle was garrisoned for the king and entrusted to Sir John Ashley to the great displeasure of Sir Rafe Grey to whom it had been promised. We shall see ere long what evils came from this displeasure. It seemed now as if the war could not be far from its end. No single place now held out for Lancaster save the castle of Harlech in North Wales, where an obscure rebellion had been smouldering ever since 1461. We must not therefore blame Warwick for want of energy, when we find that in March he left the indefatigable Montague in command and came up to London to attend the Parliament which King Edward had summoned to meet in April. Nevertheless, we shall see his absence had the most unhappy results on the border. We have no definite information as to Warwick's doings in the spring of 1463, but we cannot doubt that it was by his counsel and consent that in April his brother the Chancellor and his friend Lord Wenlock, in company with the Borcher Earl of Essex, went overseas to Flanders and contracted with Philip, Duke of Burgundy, a treaty of commercial intercourse and a political alliance. Philip then conveyed the English ambassadors to the court of Louis of France, who was lying at Edon, and with him they negotiated a truce to last from October 1st till the next year. This was to be preliminary to a definite peace with France, a plan always forward in Warwick's thoughts, for he was convinced that the last hope of Lancaster lay in the support of Louis, and that peace between Edward and the French king would finally ruin Queen Margaret's plans. But while George Neville and the Burgundians were negotiating, a new and curious development of this period of lingering troubles had commenced. Once more the Lancastrians were in arms, and again the evil began in Northumberland. Sir Rafe Grey had been promised, as we mentioned above, the governorship of Annick, and had failed to receive it when the castle fell. This so rankled in his mind that he determined to risk his fortunes on an attempt to seize the place by force and deliver it up again to the queen. In the end of May he mastered the castle by treachery and sent for the Lancastrians from over the border. Lord Hungerford came up and once more received command of the castle, which he had evacuated five months before. The news of this exploit of Grey's was too much for the loyalty of Sir Rafe Percy, the renegade governor of Banborough. When de Brézé and Hungerford came before his gates, he deliberately surrendered the castle to them without resistance. 
the exasperating news that the north was once more aflame reached warwick as he banqueted with king edward at westminster on may thirty first with his customary energy the earl set himself to repair the mischief before it could spread farther on june second he was once more marching up the great north road with a new commission to act as the king's lieutenant in the north while his brother montague was named under him lord warden of the marches warwick's plan of campaign this time was not to reduce the castles at once but to cut off the lancastrians from their base by forcing the scots to conclude peace accordingly he left the strongholds on his right and made straight for the border his first exploit was to relieve norham castle on the english side of the tweed which was beset by four thousand scottish borderers aided by peter de Breze and his mercenaries queen margaret herself was in their camp and had dragged her unfortunate consort down to the seat of war when the english appeared the scots and french raised the siege and retired behind the tweed where they set themselves to guard the ford called the holy bank but warwick was determined to cross he won the passage by force of arms and drove off its defenders a few miles across the border he found de Breze's frenchmen resting in an abbey and fell on them with such vehemence that several hundreds were taken prisoners including the lord of graville and raoul d'arenne de Breze's chief lieutenants one chronicler records a curious incident at this fight at the departing of sir piers de Bressy and his fellowship there was one manly man among them that proposed to meet with the earl of warwick he was a tabouret drummer and he stood on a little hill with his tabor and his pipe tabering and piping as merrily as any man might there he stood by himself till my lord earl came unto him he would not leave his ground warwick was much pleased with the frenchman's pluck bade him be taken gently and well treated and there he became my lord's man and yet is with him a full good servant to his lord the moment that warwick was actually across the tweed the scotch regents offered him terms of peace to prove their sincerity they agreed to send off queen margaret such pressure was accordingly put upon her that she with all her council and sir peter with the frenchman fled away by water in four balingaris and they landed at Schlausch in flanders leaving all their horses and harness behind them so sorely were they hasted by the earl and his brother the lord montague with the horses and harness was left poor king henry who for the next two years wandered about in an aimless way on both sides of the border a mere meaningless shadow now that he was separated from his vehement consort now at last the civil war seemed at an end with margaret over sea somerset a liegeman of york the northumbrian castles cut off from any hope of succour and the scots suing humbly for peace warwick might hope that his three years toil had at last come to an end that after all the struggle was to be protracted for twelve months more was a fact that not even the best of prophets could have predicted after the raid which drove queen margaret away and turned the hearts of the scots toward peace we lose sight of warwick for some months we only know that for reasons to us unknown he did not finish his exploits by the capture of the northumbrian castles but came home in the autumn leaving them still unsubdued perhaps after the winter campaign of fourteen sixty two sixty three he wished to spend christmas for once in his own fair castle of warwick 
His estates, indeed, in Wales and the West Midlands can hardly have seen him since the Civil War recommenced in 1459, and must have required the master's eye in every quarter. His wife and his daughters, too, now girls growing toward a marriageable age, as ages were reckoned in the 15th century, must long have been without a sight of him. While Warwick was for once at home, and King Edward was making a progress round his kingdom with much pomp and expense, it would seem that Queen Margaret, from the retreat in Lorraine to which she had taken herself, was once more exerting her influence to trouble England. At any rate, a new Lancastrian conspiracy was hatched in the winter of 1463-64, with branches extending from Wales to Yorkshire. The outbreak commenced at Christmas by the wholly unexpected rebellion of the Duke of Somerset. Henry of Beaufort had been so well treated by King Edward that his conduct appears most extraordinary. He had supped at the king's board, slept in the king's chamber, served as captain of the king's guard, and jousted with the king's favor on his helm. Yet at midwinter he broke away for the north with a very small following and made for the garrison at Annick. Probably Somerset's conscience and his enemies had united to make his position unbearable. The Yorkists were always taunting him behind his back, and when he appeared in public in the king's company, a noisy mob rose up to stone him, and Edward had much ado to save his life. But whether urged by remorse for his desertion of Lancaster, or by resentment for his treatment by the Yorkists, Somerset set himself to join the sinking cause at one of its darkest hours. His arrival in the north, where he came almost alone, for his followers were well-nigh all cut off at Durham, was the signal for the new Lancastrian outbreak. Simultaneously, Jasper of Pembroke endeavoured to stir up Wales. A rising took place in South Lancashire and Cheshire, in which, at one moment, ten thousand men were said to have been in the field. A band set out from Anwick, pushed by the Yorkist garrison at Newcastle, and seized the castle of Skipton and Craven, hard by Warwick's ancestral estates in the North Riding, and Norham on the border was taken by treachery. In March, Warwick set out once more to regain the twice-subdued North. The rising in Cheshire collapsed without needing his arms to put it down, and he was able to reach York without molestation. From thence he sent to Scotland to summon the Regency to carry out the terms of pacification which they had promised in the previous year. The Scots made no objection, and offered to send their ambassadors to York if safe escort was given them past the Lancastrian fortresses. Accordingly, Montague started from Durham to pick up his troops at Newcastle, where Lord Scroope was already arrayed with the levies of the North Counties. This journey was near being Montague's last, for a few miles outside Newcastle he was beset by his cousin Sir Humphrey Neville, the Earl of Westmoreland's nephew, who fell on his escort with eighty spears as he passed through a wood. Montague, however, escaped by a detour and came safely into Newcastle, where he took charge of Scroop's force and marched for the Scotch border. At Hedgeley Moor he found Somerset with all the Lancastrian refugees barring the way. There had mustered all the survivors of the campaigns of 1461, 2, and 3, Ruse and Hungerford, and Tailboys, Lord of Kyme, and the two traitors, Rafe Grey and Rafe Percy. On April 15th, their 5,000 men fell on Montague, whose forces were probably about equal. The shock was sharp but short, 
and when Rafe Percy, who led his van, was struck down, the Lancastrians dispersed. Percy, if the tale be true, refused to fly with the rest, and died crying, I have saved the bird in my bosom, meaning his loyalty to Henry. He should have remembered his faith a year before, when he swore fealty to Edward at Durham. Montague was now able to reach Scotland unmolested. He brought the Scots commissioners back to York, and a fifteen years' peace was safely concluded, the Scots promising to give no further shelter to the Lancastrians, and the English to disavow the earls of Ross and Douglas, whom they had armed against the Scotch regency. And the Scots be true, the treaty may continue fifteen years, said the chronicler, but it is hard to trust Scots, they be ever full of guile and deceit. Somerset and his followers were now without hope. Their refuge in Scotland was cut off, and their Northumbrian strongholds doomed to a speedy fall, for King Edward had been casting all the winter a train of great ordnance, such as England had never seen before, and the pieces were already on their way north. Nevertheless, the desperate adherents of Lancaster hardened their hearts, gathered their broken bands, and made one last desperate stand for the mastery of the north. On the Lynn Hills, by the town of Hexham, they arrayed themselves against Montague on May 13th. But when the Yorkists came in sight, the hearts of the followers of Somerset failed them. All save five hundred melted away from their banners, and the small band that stayed to fight were broken, beaten, surrounded, and captured by Montague's four thousand men with perfect ease. The Lancastrian lords had fought their last field. One and all were slain or captured on the hill a mile outside Hexham Town, where they had made their stand. Montague marked his triumph by the most bloody executions that had been seen throughout the whole war. At Hexham next day, he beheaded Somerset, Sir Edmund Fitzhugh, a moss-trooping captain called Blackjack, and three more. On the next day but one, he slew at Newcastle Lord Ruse, Lord Hungerford, and three others. Next day he moved south to his brother's ancestral seat of Middleham and executed Sir Philip Wentworth and six squires. Finally he conducted to York and beheaded there Sir Thomas Hussey and thirteen more, the remainder of the prisoners of rank who had come into his hands. For these sweeping executions Warwick must take part of the blame, but there is this to be said in defense of Montague's stern justice, that Somerset, and three or four others of the victims were men who had claimed and abused Edward's pardon, and that Ruse and several more had been spared at the surrender of Banborough in 1462. The whole body had shown that they could never be trusted, even if they professed to submit to York, and the practical justification of their death lies in the fact that with their execution ceased all attempts to raise the North in favor of the House of Lancaster. Public opinion among the Yorkists had nothing but praise for Montague. Lo, so manly a man is this good Lord Montague, wrote a London chronicler. He spared not their malice, nor their falseness, nor their guile, nor their treason, but slew many and took many and let smite off their heads. Even before the Battle of Hedgeley Moor, King Edward had set out to reinforce Warwick and Montague. The news of their victories reached him on the way, but he continued to advance bringing with him the great train of artillery destined for the siege of the Northumbrian fortresses. This journey was important to King Edward in more ways than one. How he spent one day of it, May 1st, when he lay at Stony Stratford, we shall presently see. If Warwick had but known of his master's doings on that morning, 
we may doubt if he would have been so joyous over his brother's victories or so remorseless with his captured enemies. The king came up to York in the end of May and kept his estate there solemnly in the palace, and there he created John Lord Montague, Earl of Northumberland, in memory of his good service during the last few months, handing over to him together with the Percy title the greater part of the great Percy estates, Annick and Warkwith and Langley and Prudhoe and many more fiefs between Tyne and Tweed. Warwick now advanced northward to complete the work which his brother had begun in the previous month, while the king remained behind in Yorkshire and occupied himself in the capture of Skipton Castle in Craven. On June 23rd the earl appeared before Annick and summoned the place. The Lancastrians had lost their leaders at Hexham, there was no more fight in them, and they surrendered at once on promise of their lives. Dunstanborough and Norham followed the example of Annick. Only Bamborough held out, for there Sir Rafe Grey had taken refuge. He knew that his treachery at Annick in the last year would never be pardoned, and utterly refused to surrender. With him was Sir Humphrey Neville, who had so nearly destroyed Montague two months before. We happen to have an account of the siege of Bamborough, which is not without its interest. When the army appeared before the castle, Warwick's herald summoned it in form. Offering free pardon, grace, body, and livelihood to all, reserving two persons, Sir Rafe Grey and Sir Humphrey Neville. Then Sir Rafe clearly determined within himself to live or die within the place, though the herald charged him with all inconvenience and shedding of blood that might befall, saying in this wise, My lord ensureth you upon his honour to sustain this siege before you these seven years, so that he win you, and if ye deliver not this jewel which the king, our dread sovereign lord, hath greatly in favour, seeing it marches so nigh unto his enemies of Scotland, whole and unbroken with ordnance, and if ye suffer any great guns to be laid against it, it shall cost you a head for every gun shot, from the head of the chief man to the head of the least person within. But Sir Rafe departed from the herald and put him in endeavour to make defence. Warwick was therefore compelled to have recourse to his battering-ram, the first that had been used to effect in an English siege. So all the king's guns that were charged began to shoot upon the said castle, Newcastle, the king's greatest gun, and London, the second gun of iron, so betide the place, that the stones of the walls flew into the sea. Dijon, a brass gun of the king's, smote through Sir Rafe Grey's chamber oftentimes, and Edward and Richard the Bombardels and other ordnance were busied on the place. Presently the wall was breached, and my lord of Warwick, with his men-at-arms and archers, won the castle by assault, Moger Sir Rafe Grey, and took him alive, and brought him to the king at Doncaster, and there the Earl of Worcester, Constable of England, sat in judgment on him. Tiptoft was a judge who never spared, and Grey, a renegade, who could expect no mercy. The prisoner was sentenced to be beheaded and only spared degradation from his knighthood because of his noble ancestor who suffered at Southampton for the sake of the king's grandfather, Richard Earl of Cambridge. His head was sent to join the ghastly collection standing over the gate on London Bridge. With the fall of Banborough, the first act of King Edward's reign was at an end. End of chapter 12
Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.